As we begin, I want to ask you two questions, and these are questions about your life and maybe an interest, a hobby that you have. How many of you enjoy antiquing? Antiquing. Raise your hand. Maybe you don't know what antiquing is. It is um, the activity or pastime of looking for junk. Is that anybody here? Okay, a few of you were bold enough before I so quickly, hopefully I didn't really hurt any of your identity this morning. How many of you enjoy, maybe you don't enjoy antiquing, but how many of you enjoy watching on PBS the Antique Roadshow? Not very many. <laughs> oh, they still run that? Actually, they do. And this morning, I, I, how many of you have, have never seen the Antique Roadshow on PBS? You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Please Google it and... Uh, <laughs> And you'll find out. Basically, let me give you a quick description. I had a fear that that was going to happen. Basically, on PBS, people uh, bring items, uh, artifacts, pieces of uh, art, or coins, something they think might have value, and they bring it to uh, a museum, a place where about 60 or 70 different appraisers are gathered for a day, and they appraise that item. On May 16th, up in Raleigh, North Carolina, there's going to be an antiques roadshow. Some of you, your mouth just dropped. You're like, I gotta go. And if you want to, you can actually bring two items and, and have them be appraised at the antiques roadshow. You have to get a ticket, and you have to go through all that and make sure, but you can bring your two items and you can go have your items appraised. Well, just imagine with me that I have a piece of artwork. Sorry, my beard is rubbing against the microphone. I apologize. <clears throat> just imagine that I have a piece of artwork that I want to be appraised. I want to actually see, is this thing, this piece worth any money? And so I load up the family in the car, and we drive up to Raleigh, North Carolina on May 16th, and we walk in, and we, you know, follow all the, 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 the process they have set up, and we finally get to the table where they appraise the item, and the appraiser is staying there. He's an expert in art, and he begins to look over the art, and he starts talking about the piece of art. Uh, undoubtedly, he's an expert, and so he can just start talking about uh, artists and art, and he just knows exactly what to say in his field very well. Well, he's going to be looking for uh, significant markers, obvious markers to him, signs that this is an authentic piece of art. So he's going to be looking at the brush strokes. He's going to look at the artist's signature. He is going to look at the canvas and see maybe what time period that canvas actually was um, created. He's going to look at the roughness of the can canvas. And he's going to do all these checking of the signs to determine, is this piece of art original and authentic? Based on those markers, he can then determine an evaluation if the art piece is authentic. May I submit to you this morning that this is true with observing the markers of authentic repentance in ourselves and in one another. 
Today we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that reveals markers of authentic repentance in the life of a believer. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you turn there, let me say that we will illuminate aspects of the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is historically viewed, understood to happen on Palm Sunday. And we will amplify some of the truths that we find in those passages with what we discover in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So let me tell you the background story of how we get to 2 Corinthians 7. In the New Testament church, there is uh, the New Testament, there's a church called the Church of Corinth. The Church of Corinth was a church with major problems. Maybe you've read the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul actually writes several letters to this church. And we actually only have two of the letters, and we know these letters as First and Second Corinthians. In First Corinthians, he was confronting the members and believers in that church. And what was he confronting them over? It was moral issues, major issues of division. For example, they were allowing a guy to sleep with his stepmother and still be a part of the church community. They were bringing each other to court over matters in the church. That's First Corinthians six, and finally. Uh, They were uh, observing, when they observed the Lord's table, some were getting drunk while others were eating nothing. This table was not about remembering the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. It was about satisfying temporary desires. And they failed to consider further in in the book that spiritual gifts are not for puffing one itself up to show how spiritual they are, but actually it's all to be done in love. 1 Corinthians 13. And many individuals in the church, they repent. But some in the church do not. They actually reject Paul and and they begin to deny Paul's authority and they question his motives. You may ask, why would people in the church question Paul's motives and authority? Well, it's because Paul was weak. We start to see that in the later uh, book of 2 Corinthians. He was suffering physically and, and experiencing much affliction. And so in their minds, they were thinking, if he is really an apostle of God, how on earth could this man experience such suffering And affliction. And so Paul, he goes to visit the church, uh, and we know this from 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. This is between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He goes and visits the church in person. And in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, he describes this as a painful visit. It was not a joyous occasion, it was hard, it was difficult. And what was the reason that it did not go well. Well, it seems what happened is there was a leading figure within the church that stood up to Paul and resisted his authority. And the church actually did nothing about it. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. And so then after this painful visit, Paul goes back and Paul writes the the church another letter that we do not have this letter either. And we know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and it says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, 
and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so after Paul writes this letter, he needs someone to deliver this letter, and he gives it to Titus, and Titus delivers it and reads it to the church of Corinth. And it's through Paul's faithful love for these people, it becomes clear that the Corinthian believers, they actually are the greatest affliction to Paul. It was not his physical infirmities and difficult, that difficulties he's had. It was actually the, the painful affliction that they brought to Paul. And so this is where we pick up the story in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 13. Let me read that for us this morning. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced. Still more. I want to just pause for a moment and recognize that there may be some here who, due to events that you experienced this week, find your soul downcast. May I remind you that your source of comfort is our God, as Paul clearly states this in verse 6 the God who comforts the downcast. The God whose steadfast love was evident to Joseph in the dark prison. The God who demonstrated to Job that he was sovereign over all things is the God who comforts you, me, in our downcast state. And clearly, it's interesting to see that Paul viewed Titus as the means of grace, the kindness of God, the means of comforting Paul in his discouraging state. It is an amazing testimony of what true relationships and the comfort that we can have from one another. And these are not just relationships and comfort that we give to one another. It's just not something that that is random or happenstance, but it's actually a godsend. It is good, and it is from our Lord who gives all good things. And so as you seek comfort, run to the Lord, but see every blessing that He gives you in the midst of your downcast state to see that it comes from our God. So verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. It is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Before we go much further, I want to stop and just ask and answer the question, what is repentance? Paul actually uses the word in concentration in this passage, repentance, more than his, any of his other writings. He uses it in abundance here in this passage. And so it's important for us to ask, what is repentance? Well, in the Old Testament, the word repent is used to mean a change in direction. I've often heard the illustration that's helpful of you're driving down the road and you forget something at home, you recognize you forgot something, and so you pull a U-turn to go back home. The recognition that you forgot something, the turning around to go back is repentance. So in the context of the Corinthian church, they had this season where they were not willing to actually change direction. They were hell-bent on going this one way, and that was against Paul. They held a direction that rejected his authority, and frankly, the influence of him on their church. And so what led to the change of that direction for the Corinthian believers? It was Paul's severe letter. He says this in verse 7, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. The letter caused grief. They were distressed, sad over the contents of this letter. It's interesting to know Paul's own conflict as he sends this letter. He, he, he feels the sense of what is going to happen. We're actually going to talk a little bit about that at the end. And so this leads us to another important question. Oh, I'm supposed to be clicking through this. That's right, I forgot. What is repentance? <laughs> There's a definition. A change of heart that leads to a change in the direction of our lives. Is grief the mark of authentic repentance? The question that really should be asked for us is thinking, is grief the mark of authentic repentance? If, if, if something bad happens and someone sins and, and then it gets exposed and they start crying, is that the mark of authentic repentance? Is actually, hey, I'm so sorry, the mark of repentance? These are helpful questions for us. And Paul makes it clear that at some level, grief is involved. It's an element of repentance because he uses the word grief or grieve eight times. And that grief is described, and, and, and there's a grief that's described godly three times in this passage. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And one time it is described as worldly. 
So it is possible that, that someone could be grieving in a godly way, or it's possible that someone could be grieving in a worldly way. And so what does worldly grief look like? Well, let me use an illustration from Scripture that I think will help for us. If you were to read in Revelation chapter 18, there is a description of the fall of Babylon. And the angel comes from heaven and declares that Babylon is falling. And when the kings of the, the, uh, the time and the merchants that are sailing on the seas bring all the goods to Babylon, when they see that Babylon is destroyed, they are weeping. They are crying. They are grieving. And the kings, they mourn because they no longer can enjoy the luxury and lavish lifestyle of the items of Babylon. And the merchants have no one else to sell their luxurious goods to. They were making a profit over, uh, from everybody. They were wealthy and rich people. And now who's going to buy all these luxurious goods? No one, now that Babylon is destroyed. But both of them are grieving. They weep and cry. And the merchants say, in a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone. Was this grief that the kings and merchants demonstrated, experienced, was this godly grief? Surely not. It was, it was worldly grief. They weren't grieving over their sin. They weren't grieving that realizing their sin has been, been a great offense to God, a holy God, as we sang this morning. They didn't grieve because, hey, hey, I've not been living right before God. They grieved at the consequence of the judgment of God. So what is worldly grief? It's, self, it's centered on self. It's not a grief for sin against God, it's, it grieves over the consequences, consequences. It aches with embarrassment. It focuses on its own hurt. It is fueled by self-pity. And as Paul says, this grief only leads to death. So if tears and grief don't necessarily indicate repentance, then what does? Well, Richard Sibbs provides a classic Puritan definition of repentance when he writes, not a little hanging down of our heads, but a working our hearts to such grief as will make sin more odious unto us than punishment until we offer a holy violence against us. We are looking for heart transformation. And so in verse 11, Paul gives us Seven markers to distinguish someone's grief and sorrow over sin. He's observing the Corinthian believers and he says, I saw these seven unique realities in your life. And so what are these markers? They are this. Number one, earnestness. We see these in verse 11. Earnestness. It's like someone that is sitting on the edge of their seat. It is, it is an intensity. And what are they intense about? They, they reject indifference. They become intentionally serious 
about how they are living. They no, lo- they no longer want to continue to live the way they were living. They see it only leads to destruction. They see it only leads to death. And they say, I've got to turn everything about my life. This has to change. So there's an earnestness. There's an eagerness to clear yourself. The, the Corinthians, they were willing to tell anyone anything to make sure they were right for with Paul. There was this, this boldness to say, hey, I don't care, whatever it takes, I want it to be known that we are loyal to Paul. We're on Paul's side. The consequences of embarrassment actually no longer matter to them. When I think of, of eagerness to clear yourself, I think of Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Here, he's climbing the tree. Christ is coming to town. Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house. He, he, he goes and to, uh, to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus repents. And what was the beautiful sign of that repentance? The marker of that repentance? He goes and just starts paying back everybody fourfold. He's like, and imagine the embarrassment of that. Hey, I, um, <clears throat> I actually like, took a lot of money from you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and I want to give you this, this amount of money. I want to actually make sure that, that you're right. I am so, so sorry. Think about the uh, potential embarrassment for Zacchaeus. And the Corinthian believers, they said, no, no, that is actually not going to be a pivotal determination of what I do. It is actually going to be this eagerness to say, I want to be right with the Lord and I want to be right with you, Paul. There was indignation. Indignation. That is the healthy state of being incensed at wrongdoing. They were incensed at the consequence, uh, not just at the consequence, but they were incensed at the wrong. They were incensed at the sin. They were incensed that, that this was just, just wicked what they did. Number four, fear. It is the sincerely being alarmed at the damage done to the communion and with, with, uh, to communion with Paul and with God. They looked at their relationship with Paul, the communion they had with him, it's destroyed. They looked at their relationship with God, it's been destroyed. And they said, wow, this is really bad. We should be fearful. Number five, longing. Longing. Longing for what? Longing to have relational harmony with Paul once again. They wanted to be restored again. They wanted to be close again to Paul. Authentic uh, repentance always includes a restoration of closeness. Closeness. I think about Adam and Eve before they sinned, they walked with God in the garden. They enjoyed that closeness. It was, it was, they walked with God. They talked with God. They fellowshiped with God. There was sweet closeness. But yet when they sinned, it was broken. There was division. There was, there was, there was brokenness. And so you think about the reverse. When there is harmony, there is there is sweetness of a relationship. What happens when we sin is there's, there's brokenness. And so it is you going and saying, I want to be restored with you. Maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. When you do something wrong towards someone, do you really want to spend time around them? 
No. You know, when, when you're kind of like doing things that you shouldn't be doing, at, no. You don't want to spend time around them. You want to avoid them. And so there is this longing for relational harmony once again. Number seven, zeal. Zeal, this animated passion that is driving force that cannot be stopped. They are not apathetic in repentance. They're eager. There's intensity. And number seven, punishment. They were wanting to make sure that that individual who was in the Corinthian church was actually understood uh, the, the needed the equitable and proper correction as he has stood against Paul and led the church in a way against Paul. Repentance demonstrates a seriousness about sin. And so these seven markers of authentic repentance reveal an intensity for reconciliation and restoration. They, they give clarity about the truth and not complacency. It drives the person who has sinned to say, I want to be right with you. I don't care what stands in the way because being right with you, being right with God matters singularly. Undoubtedly, you're, you're thinking to yourself or maybe you're thinking about yourself, maybe about someone else. And you wonder, is there really hope? Maybe you have a deep concern and wonder and you're just asking, are they past the point of repentance? They've made some big mistakes, and if there's, is there really a way back? I was recently reminded of the story of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. You may know the story, and he was a former slave ship captain that scoured the African coast for human cargo to bring back to the slave block and sell. In fact, he, re- he referred to himself as the great blasphemer among his shipmates. Even though his mother was a Christian and taught him the songs of Isaac Watts, he raised his fist in devi- defiance to God in his 20s. Historians estimate that uh, uh, 10 to 12 million African slaves were ripped from their homes and 15 to 25% of them died during transportation. John Newton was a part of that. It was March 21st, 1748, while sailing his ship entitled the Greyhound, In the middle of the night, during a disastrous storm, he lifted up his voice, not as a blasphemer. He actually was underneath the hall, in the hall, and during the storm, he was coming up the ladder, and the man that was going up in front of him, the storm was so great, it whipped him off the ship and threw him in the ocean, and that man was never seen again. He went to the helm, and he held on to the the, the steering and he did not raise his voice as a blasphemer. He actually raised his voice as someone needing help. And he pleaded, Lord, have mercy on us. And he stayed at the helm for 11 hours. And from the storm, he was delivered. Only God's amazing grace could and would save a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor and transform him into a child of God. 
And it was 22 years later that he penned the words, Amazing Grace. Grace. No, no, that, that's not good enough. Amazing grace. Oh, how sweet that sounds. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. At this point, John Newton is a pastor And he goes on to influence William Wilberforce who led the British campaign to abolish the slave trade. What a story of repentance. From a man who had blood on his hands to a man who delivered many from slavery. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. This demonstrates the realities of a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered, authentic repentance. He was a changed man. And so it's an important question to ask. Well, what's the purpose of repentance? What is the purpose of repentance? Well, look to verse 12, 2 Corinthians seven twelve. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. Nor was it for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, which which would have been Paul. But actually, it was in order that your eagerness, or excuse me, earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Oh, the, the, the Corinthians might actually be right in the presence of God. The overarching supreme reason is that these believers would be right with God. And when did Paul, uh, and what did Paul make of all this? Verse 13, therefore we are comforted. Therefore we are comforted. There is this sweet peace available to the one who knows they are honorable and right before the eyes of the Lord. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from with this? Well, let me give you three applications this morning. Three applications for us this morning. And here's application number one. To those who more closely resemble Paul. Maybe you have a relative, a loved one, a close friend who has wandered from the Lord. What do you do? Well, could I first say, be comforted to see how Paul wrestled with the grief he caused. I I, I actually, you know, in verse 8, Paul wrestled with how he caused so much grief in the life of the Corinthians. He even said, I regret it. Should I say anything? I don't know. Should I send that severe letter? I don't know. Maybe God will just work it out. What do I do? And I don't know about you, but, but if, if you're like me, I've had those moments where there's a conversation that might need to be had, had and my stomach is just in knots. I find it immensely comforting that actually it seems as if Paul had the same reality. So be comforted. 
with the wrestling that you might endure. But number two, be willing to actually cause godly grief. Be willing to cause godly grief. We risk being rejected and criticized when we care about someone enough to address their sin. But we should follow Paul's example. Enough to address their sin. Excuse me. We should follow Paul's example and do it anyways. It could be that you are God's way of bringing them back to a path of repentance that leads to life. So that was number, application number one. Maybe you find yourself in that circumstance this morning. But number two, to those who more closely resemble the church of Corinth. Maybe you find yourself actually pining under the consequences of sin. Maybe you find yourself uh, even with unrepentant sin. What do I say to you? Repent. Have godly grief. Be zealous to make the wrongs right. Pursue people and confess all wrongs. Look at the seven markers of the Corinthian believers and see if your life resembles those markers. Don't live life apathetically, but with zeal and passion towards the Lord and to those who have, you have sinned against. But I must share a warning from Thomas Brooks, a Puritan pastor, who, who gave a warning, and I want to paraphrase, that before you sin, Satan will tell you repentance is easy. But after you sin, he will tell you repentance is too hard. This work of Satan will work despair and present repentance as the hardest work of all in the world. And both of these are lies. He goes on to say, Oh, that you were wise to break off your sins by timely repentance. And so I echo his call to say, don't delay, turn to Christ and repent. Not, con- not regretting the, 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 with the consequences, but living in life, in light, under the authority of our God. And then application number three. Application number three. What do we do this with this on Palm Sunday? What connection do we draw between the marks of authentic repentance and our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey? Imagine with me the multitude of people surrounding Christ as He walked down the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey. And surely the multitudes knew that this was the Messiah as He was fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah Chapter 9, verse 9. The joy that they uttered when they saw the king ride down on the dry, dusty road. They waved palm branches as if for a victor coming back to his city. And they yelled, Hosanna! Hosanna! And they followed, they shouted, Blessing on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They thought peace had arrived. 
Some of the Pharisees instructed Jesus to rebuke the crowds for their clear messianic jubilation. Yet Jesus did not diminish the enthusiasm of the crowd. Actually, Christ's actions on Sunday set in motion a series of events that either he would overthrow the Roman government and be the the political king, or he was going to experience a brutal, brutal death. And so he crossed the point of no return. Yet how could they welcome him on Sunday and on Friday shouting, crucify him? How can five days make such a difference? They wanted a Savior to deliver them from their Roman oppressor. Not a Savior for their sins. They welcomed Him as a King, but didn't realize that He would be King of their hearts. They wanted Jesus for their own purpose of overthrowing the Romans. And Jesus, He gets close to the city, and He begins to weep. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The people were celebrating and shouting peace. They thought they had peace coming. But Jesus says they actually know nothing about peace. They actually didn't understand the true realities of why He was coming. He came to seek and to save that which were lost. The very nature of repentance is realizing I'm lost and only Jesus can fix this mess. They actually thought they had everything figured out. Their mouths said one thing, but their hearts were far from submitting to God. They did not possess the true nature of repentance. So a few days later, they would nail Jesus to a cross. And they really, and in who they really were, would be discovered. As we gave the definition early, repentance. A change of heart that leads to a change in the direction of our lives. Today we've dove into 2 Corinthians 7 to discover the marks of authentic repentance. May we each consider the passage and evaluate our own lives to see if the marks of authentic repentance are characteristics in our daily experience. It is easy for us to look at others and say, hey, this is really great for them, but may you and I actually authentically seek these in our lives every day as we foster closeness with one another and as we foster closeness with our Lord. May we be not apathetic, but may we run to the Lord, eager, seeking to know Him and follow in, his, uh, in light of His Word. Let us pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You actually came and died on the cross for our sins to seek and to save that which were lost. The very mission of Your... The, the very call of your, your message was repent and believe the Gospel. And Lord, there are some who today, as 
as a follower of Christ, maybe they say, I, I, I have followed Christ, but I have, I have let sin destroy. I've actually, I've actually gone back to the world. And the world has been a terrible taskmaster. Oh Lord, will you please bring these individuals, whoever they may be, to a right relationship with you. May they actually demonstrate the marks of authentic repentance. Lord, to those who may be struggling, maybe there's a child, maybe there's another relationship where someone is observing the, 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 how Paul functioned And may you give them boldness to confront. May they actually have comfort by seeing even the angst that Paul had in him sending this letter to the Corinthians. And may all of our motives, the purpose of all this, be so that we can live in the sweet presence of our God. Lord, may you be with us today. May, as we think about this week, may there be a a a, a sweet work that happens in our hearts as we remember that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be reconciled to our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.